Welcome to the Reimagined Church Podcast with Pastor Robert Tanner. You can listen weekly on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasting. You can learn more about Reimagined Church by visiting us online at reimaginedpeople.com or by downloading our app for your Apple and Android devices. Now, let's join the service for this week's message. You know, we're in this series we've, we've, we've been talking about, you know, God's call and purpose and, and provision for our life, and, and we've been using the story of Joseph as our background, and we've been talking about these tests that he went through. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking this morning, for so many people, especially non-saved people, people who just think the church is, ah, it's for weak people who need, who need a God and that sort of thing. You'll hear people like that, uh, people, if you know who Bill Maher is, Bill Maher is very uh, well-known for talking about how things from the Bible are just children's fable stories. He keeps calling them fables, and, and I don't think the man knows what, a word, what the word fable means, but, um, you know, there's stories and children's stories, and, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's really sad that the world has taken that view of it because we understand that they weren't just stories. They were real events that happened to real people, and some of them seem pretty hyperbolous. Now, I mean, think about this. A fish swallowing a man? You know, well, we know modern science has said that that's absolutely impossible. The problem is that's man's science. That's man's understanding. That's man's wisdom. But the Bible says God prepared a fish, and that's his science. That's his wisdom. And I'm sitting here thinking, if the man who managed to hang all these planets to stay in constant circumference around the sun and not spin off into outer space, if he can speak that into existence, I think he can probably make a fish big enough to swallow a man. It's really not that hard to believe. But we live in a world that doesn't want to believe it. So I love taking stories about people like Joseph and pulling his life apart as we read about it. And all of a sudden we find out, hey, this guy, you know, we've been talking about these tests that he went through. I gave you a heads up and I told you to begin with. There's 10 tests that Joseph went through. And, and they're very easy to see if you're looking for them. And as we start to hear the story and we start to read about it, we realize, hey, this is, that man's life is not that much different than mine. And, and, and maybe I haven't gone through all the same things that he's gone through, but certainly we probably know of somebody or we've read of somebody or we saw something on CNN or Fox News about somebody's life story. And you realize, hey, that's, that's a person that has suffered uh, egregiously at the hand of somebody else. And thank God I haven't experienced that, but you realize, hey, that person might have a little bit of Joseph's story. And the first test that we talked about, we talked about this pride test. Remember when he has this a dream, he's 17 years of age, and, and being a little bit impetuous, he decides he's going to brag about it. He's got this dream about his brothers and eventually his parents bowing down to him and serving him and came across as quite 
prideful, and we called that the pride test, and basically that pride test, when we talked about that, the whole thing had to do with how do you and I respond to, to, to the dreams that God has placed in our lives, because God does give you dreams that originate from Him that He wants to bring out in your life. And, and some of these aren't necessarily that far whacked out. Some of you, God gave you a dream to be a school nurse. It's a God-given dream. Is it unreasonable? No. We have one sitting here in the sanctuary, and I can go through the room and, and point out different things about each one of you. And then there's other things. There's dreams that we have. I mean, when I was in high school, how we can remember this. As a matter of fact, I remember one time in a snowstorm walking across Cosby Manor Road, going from our friend Steve Abdu's house back to Howie's house. And I remember telling Howie I wanted to be an army general just like Douglas or like Patton or MacArthur or something like that. All right. Uh, that was not a God-given dream. That was my dream. Okay? Uh, the example I gave when I preached that message is sometimes we have dreams that we might want to play for the Buffalo Bills or the Dallas Cowboys or the Philadelphia Eagles. And for all of you guys who are in this room right now who are over the age of 35, i got news for you. They ain't going to call you. Okay, it's not going to happen. So there's dreams that we have that aren't realistic, but there are God-given dreams that we have to take and, and run with and, 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 and trust him for that. But now remember, Joseph got this dream, but there's this 20-year period that he goes through before the dream starts to become realized. And isn't it amazing how God didn't tell him in the dream, by the way, you're going to be sexually accused of wrongdoing. You're going to be thrown into prison for things you didn't do. Your brothers, the closest kin that you have, your family, that safe place is going to abandon you and lie to your father for 20 years, letting him think that you're dead. Isn't it interesting how God did not tell him any of that? I wonder why. I wonder why. After the pride test, we talked about the pit test, and we talked about how you have an enemy of your, your life, an enemy of your soul, who attacks you, and he will fabricate evidence against you to destroy you so that the dream in your life won't come true. That's what happened with Joseph. Remember, again, part of the cute little story is this coat of many colors, and they throw him in the pit, and his brothers put animals' blood on it, and they take the coat to their dad, and they say, is this your, your son's coat? They never said an animal devoured him. They never said that anything happened to him. He sees the blood, and he just comes in his own mind and says, surely he's been devoured. An animal has ripped him apart. They never said that. I'm sure that that was the implication. That's exactly what they wanted to think. But the point is, we all have things in our life that happen because of other people or decisions that we make, and the enemy will take something in that, and he's going to fabricate some piece of evidence to use against you to make you think a lie about you is true. And that's what we've talked about before. You've heard me say this many times before, that every sin that we engage in begins with a lie. It starts with a lie. We engage in it because we think, oh, I'm not going to get caught. Yes, you are. And if you don't get caught by somebody sitting in the seat next to you or somebody in your family, you need to remember God is going to see it. There is a witness every time. And you don't get away with it. Some people might think, well, I know so-and-so did something and they, went to, they, they died and they never had to pay the price. Really? 
Do you know where they are right now? And maybe they're in heaven. Maybe they are in heaven. But maybe they lost some reward. They will pay a price. Everything is going to be judged. The great thing about for those of, of us who are in Christ Jesus, what the Bible tells us is that when we stand before the judgment seat, and I, I, I hope if you don't get anything else I said today, I'm, by the way, I'm going way off my message. If you don't get anything else I said, I, I hope you get this. The Bible tells us there are two judgments. There's two judgments, the great white throne judgment seat, and then there's a the judgment seat of Christ. We're not all going to be at the same judgment seat. Let me say that again. We're not all going to be at the same judgment seat. The Bible makes it very clear that for the believer, who's a believer? Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. By the way, you know, I heard somebody this last week say the most asinine thing. He said, I've read the whole Bible, and nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever, ever expressly say he's the Son of God. Well, you're clearly illiterate. That's the very thing that put him on the cross. That to be saved means that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you've decided, you know what? I, I believe he's a son of God. I believe he paid my sin debt. And I'm going to do everything I can to follow him. In other words, I, I know he's everybody's savior. He paid for, for sin, past, present, future for everybody. I get that. But now I'm going to make him Lord. In other words, you know what? I'm going to find out what he says to do. And that's to the best of my ability to what God equips me with and, and, and encourages me with. I'm going to do everything I can to follow him. By the way, I'm putting this as simple terms as I can. I'm going to do everything I can to follow him. And when I mess up, I'm going to let his grace cover that. Because we're all going to mess up. Christians say and do stupid things. You know why? Because they're fallen people. But for those people who accept Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior, and that's all that means. It, all, it doesn't mean you're more special than anybody. Well, you are. Because you're his. It's only, the Bible tells us the only people that have the right to become or be called sons and daughters are those who've accepted him. So that's why when I tell you when people say, hey, we're all God's children. No, we're not. We're all God's creation. Every person is God's creation. But only those who accepted Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, and this is in the book of John, have the right to be called the sons and daughters. Sons and daughters get what? They get the inheritance of the parent. Those are the only ones. We get to stand, and, 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 and yes, I'm proud I'm one of those, but I'm not self-righteously proud. I'm proud that, thank God, by your grace, Jesus, you've allowed me to be one of those people. Here's the neat thing. And I'm looking around a room full of people, most all of you that I know, and I know that you're going to be at that judgment seat of Christ with me. And did you know at the judgment seat of Christ, he is not going to bring up one sin that you ever made. You know what the issue with the judgment seat of Christ is? One issue, one issue only. It's all about reward. He's actually going to review your life and look for excuses to reward you eternally. 
Now, the Bible tells us that all, all, all sin has to be accounted for. It was accounted for on the cross. It was justified on the cross, and that's why when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, your sin doesn't count against you because it's been justified. It's just as if I'd never done it. We have nothing to fear. Those who are without Jesus will stand at the great white throne judgment. And at that judgment seat, you're going to have God the Father, you're going to have Jesus the Son, and you're going to have Satan the accuser. And he's going to rat you out on every thought you thought, every act you committed, everything that's contrary to God and his nature, he's going to be right there pointing a long skinny finger and saying, him, her. You know what they did? And then you have to give, and those people have to give an account for it. They're the ones that stand in judgment. They're going to have to justify themselves. And here's the thing, there is no justification for it. But because they did not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as the justifier, then, the, then, then God the Father is going to require them to give an account of themselves. I know me. I don't want to give an account of myself. I can't. That's the point. So when I hear people say, but I'm a good person, compared to who? Adolf Hitler? Jeffrey Dahmer? Vladimir Putin? I mean, who are you comparing yourself to? Because the standard on that side is one standard. The comparison is going to be Jesus himself. Well, I can't compare to him. Again, that's the point. That's the point. So we all go through these, these tests. And there's this, this palace test that we talked about, and Joseph suddenly finds himself in, this, in, in Potiphar's house, and because he's such a good steward, because he has this godly character in him, everything he touches just turns to gold, and that test has to do with stewardship. How are you stewarding? By the way, it's how he was stewarding. Didn't what wasn't belong to him. It was all about his stewardship of what belonged to somebody else. As a pastor. Hopefully pastors are always aware of this. How am I stewarding the people that the Lord has put in the church? Am I using them to my own ends? Am I using them to build a big church name for myself so I have a big name for myself? Stewardship. Then there's the purity test. Remember we talked about that, this test of morality. Impurity demands transparency. Any of you ever been challenged when you're purity? Don't raise your hands. Every one of hands should be up. You know, there's no need to raise our hands. We, we know we all have. If you, if, you got, if you got breath in your lungs, you've been challenged in this area. 
Then there's the prison test. It's when you do the right thing, but you get the wrong consequences. Anybody ever had that happen? I know I did the right thing. Wrong consequences. See, again, these tests, this isn't just a children's fable. The Lord allowed these stories to be captured across the ages so that you and I today can look back at other people who've gone before us and realize we're not in this life alone and we get to experience the same things. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But all through Joseph's life, we see God's hand, and after 20 years, he steps in to his destiny. He doesn't fulfill it, but he steps into it. That dream that started off his troubles, and then we talked about that blasted coat, right? That got him in trouble a couple times too. (laughs) Got himself tagged with something. And then the other test that we're supposed to be going into today, and I have just so far off my notes here, is talking about power. The power test. What happens when you get that power? What do you do with it? Some of you are sitting here thinking, well, I've never really had a power test. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. But that power, that power test happens when we step into God's destiny for our life. Let me just read something to you. This is in Genesis verse chapter 41, verses 1 through 7 is where Pharaoh has his dreams. In verse 8, we're going to read about Joseph's dream here. It says, now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. Now this is speaking of, of uh, Pharaoh. Did I say it was Potiphar's first two dreams? Is that what I said? Did I, say, I did say Pharaoh? Okay. See, I told them I'm not feeling well. I'm getting kind of warm in here, so it's... Manipause. Okay. He sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told him this dream, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh and said, I remember my, my faults this day. In other words, now he's deciding he's going to tell Pharaoh all about Joseph. And Joseph had been sitting there for, for two more years after this guy said, hey, please remember me. And now he remembers Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly. And by the way, I underlined this word quickly because I want you to understand it's very, very important to understand that power, this power test, this this authority, we use another word, like maybe that will help you out. When you receive authority, when you receive power, when all of a sudden you're the it person, that comes on you quickly. It comes on you quickly. Just like with, with Joseph, he's in prison one morning, And the next morning, he's second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. So authority and power will come upon you very, very quickly. The question is, what is our response going to be? Verses 37, so the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God Isn't that interesting? Even an unbeliever notices when the Spirit of God is upon one of his people. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. 
Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which was a Ford F-250 extended cab dually, (laughs) which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. So this prison test that we talked about, by the way, is how we respond when bad things happen. And this power test is how we respond when good things happen. This this pride test is when dreams come to you. The power test is when the destiny comes to you. i say it again. The power test, or the pride test, is when you get the dream. The pride test is what's going to end up in your lap when you reach your destiny. Not when you've completed it, but as soon as you step into it. If a person gets prideful just over a dream, can you imagine what this guy is going to do when the power test comes? I wonder what the Lord was working on in his life for 20 years. And again, it comes quickly. Joseph hadn't fulfilled his destiny at this point. He just simply stepped into it. So where does power come from? Psalm 62.11. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Romans 4.14. There is no power in existence, no authority that is not set up by God. And here's Jesus standing before Pilate in John 19, verses 10 and 11. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? In other words, he's saying, you're not going to answer me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Now, this is amazing. Pilate is saying that to the creator of the universe. How arrogant. Do you not know that I have power? You hung the moon, I can do better than that. That's kind of what he's saying. You think you got it together, I'm much more powerful than you. I wonder, the man clearly had no idea that Jesus could have simply just turned him to dust with one word. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. All power comes from God. There must come within you and I this understanding, this recognition that even though you worked for something, God is the one who gave you the ability to do that. And if you don't see that, you're arrogant. You have the ability. As a brain surgeon, God gave you that ability you have the ability to create and build and rejuvenate things with your hands that is a gift from God that he gave you to do that and if you think for a second that anything originates out of you that is a height of deception you are nothing except for what God gave you and what, he, and what he's instilled in you. And he's done it by his grace and his mercy. 
because he loves you and your sons and your daughters. And if you're a dad and you know how much you love your son and your daughter and what you're willing to do to provide for them and you think you can begin to hold a candle to what the creator of the universe had set his sights on you for, that's like Pilate. You're arrogant. You're arrogant, and that's what Jesus is telling him. The power test speaks of how we respond to success. How do we respond? What kind of leader are you? Are you and by the way, some, again, I alluded to this earlier, some might think I'm not a leader. Yes, you are. It's our natural desire to want to lead, every one of you. Why? Because you're created in God's image. An all-powerful, all-knowing God, he wants you to be all-powerful. He wants you to be all-knowing. He wants you to be just like him. You ever watch a little girl play with dolls? How she talks to the dolls and exercises authority? You ever seen that? You ever seen the youngest child in the house, how they talk to the dog? Because they finally got somebody to boss around. It's in us. We we all want to do it. It's natural. There's nothing wrong with desiring power and influence. And I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but in Timothy and Titus both, Paul is telling them, for those who, who desire to be overseers, bishops, presbyters, he tells them they're desiring a good thing. When they want to be overseers, that's a good thing. We're supposed to want that. But the question is, what are you and I using it for? See, is it me focused or is it others focused? See, when you desire to have authority and power for the benefit of somebody else, that's godly in nature and it's for them. But when you want power and authority to lift your name up, to give you influence and hopefully affluence, that's selfishness. And that's what the Bible speaks against. We live in a whole society now that doesn't want strong men. Ever since World War II, because of Adolf Hitler, Europe started to reject strong personalities, strong men who would lead. We've always had them all throughout our society, all throughout history. And we've had good men and we've had bad men. But I think the enemy, because of of sin in the world, has got us convinced that somehow that we don't need strong men. We don't need strong leaders. So now we've rejected strong men in the house. We've rejected strong men in the house. We've decided that somehow there being a man is a bad thing and we've feminized our culture. But yet we serve a king who wants men to gird up their loins like men and stand for righteousness and reflect their king, reflect their God, and lead their houses, lead their wives, lead their children, lead their community, and lead their country. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as those men are focused on what is best for other people. Power is a good thing. 
And it needs to be reined in. It needs to be held to account. It needs to be, it needs to be brought in to the, the, the total oversight of a godly king because we can't do it in and of ourselves. There's this power test that's going on. There's a right power, there, there, there's a right desire and a wrong desire. Again, the wrong desire simply focuses on ourselves, and the right desire focuses on others. So where does it come from? James 4:10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let me give you another, another phrase for this word lift you up. He's going to give you power. He's going to give you authority, and he's going to give you responsibility. That's what that means. If you'll humble yourself. If you'll humble yourself. First Peter 5, 5 through 6 says this. Likewise, young people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud. You ever thought about that? Listen. God resists the proud. How would you like to know that God is not only not for you, he's actively resisting you? Because of your pride. Because of your pride. And sometimes that pride simply says, I don't need God because I've got it together and I'm not a bad person. All right. But the second part of that, he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. God gives grace to the humble. One of the aspects of grace is the enabling or the empowering. Grace isn't just forgiveness. It's about empowering you. So all those dreams that you have that have originated with a God that you might know, how would you like to have the empowering to carry out the dream? By humbling yourself. It's amazing to me how many of us will act really humble when we start out at something, but get seasoned at it for a while, get used to standing up in front of people and talking, and watch how many people will lose their humility. It's funny. In, some larger churches, I mean, you've got so many of these different ministries and places that people come to church, they first start serving. One of the things that, you know, they might be in a, a large mega church or something, and you're asked to help with the parking lot attendants, help people get the cars parked. And the person gets recognized that, wow, they're there serving all the time, they're helping people out, they're really just Johnny on it. And you decide to promote them. This happens all the time. We want to promote you. You're going to be the senior parking lot attendant. The next day, they, next week, they showed up with an orange vest on, a bullhorn, and a traffic cone that looks like they dressed up out of Star Wars or something. Because now they've got power and they've got authority and they're going to exercise it. When I, when I was a police officer, every time one of the officers would get promoted to the sergeant, what was one of the first things we'd tell them? Hey, don't forget about what it's like here in the real world, Okay. Especially if they went above sergeant to lieutenant, and now they were just you know driving a desk all day long. Don't forget about us. It happens a lot. Why? Because it's listen. If that's been you, if that's happened to you, don't 
don't feel ashamed about it. Feel challenged by, hey, maybe I have lost my perspective. And remember, you're there for the other people. You're there for them. Genesis 41, 15 through 16, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have dreamed a dream and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. In other words, hey, this isn't about me, dude. I, I understand you heard that, but don't, don't lay that on me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Joseph was a prime candidate, a prime candidate for pride. The Bible tells us he was handsome, he was intelligent, he had great ability. Reminds me of me. Just showing some humility there. But he even had the confirmation of God in his life. I mean, this, those are some pretty good characteristics. I don't think there's any of those that I just named that ain't been here in rooms and said, yeah, that's it's just not for me. But he was exalted because he humbled himself. It doesn't say he acted humbly. It didn't say he put on a show so that he'd get promoted. That's not what it says. It's part of his character. It's part of who he naturally was. Any of you know anybody? Don't look at the person next to you who's prideful. Isn't it ugly when you see it? Yes? Am I the only one who thinks it's ugly? You ever notice that? If a person's been successful, but he's prideful, isn't that just repulsive? How about the, the person that hasn't had any success, and yet they're prideful? Does that just look foolish? We, we've seen both. Uh, if you've been alive for any length of time, you've, you've seen some expression of it. But when a person's had great success and they walk in great humility, isn't that attractive? Does it just draw you to them? Thank you. So why do you think power comes? Why does God give his power? Why do you think he shares his power with somebody? Ever thought about that? Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth through the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Power is given to help people. That's why it's given to you. And God had been preparing Joseph to serve that whole time. God never put Joseph in that place for Joseph's sake. Never. He put him there for the sake of many people. For the sake of many people. God was using him to literally feed an entire nation of his people. And it took 20 years on Mr. Toad's wild ride to find out going down paths and in seasons not one of us in this room have ever asked for. Let me ask you something. Every person in here, I don't care how old you are, are you now or have you ever been in a season of life you would never, 
ever want to walk through again. We're no different than Joseph. Joseph had these 10 tests. We've talked about eight of them now. There's only one that he failed. And all the others that he passed took a long time to get through. Why? Because God was working on his character. See, you and I get upset with God and sometimes we'll believe he doesn't even exist because he doesn't give us the answers that you and I want. Because we want an escape from our circumstances. And as a loving father, he's trying to look at each one of us as sons and daughters and saying, son, daughter, it's not that I don't care about your circumstances. I've overcome those. I'm working on your character. Because there's something that I have planned for you that supersedes your circumstances. Your circumstances are but for a short season. And you're going to walk out of that. But I'm trying to walk you into your destiny if you'll let me, but I'm not going to force you. I've never chosen to force anybody. But my will will get accomplished. I didn't stick close to my sermon at all. I'm going to deviate from here because I think this is important to be said, excuse me, but out of 10 days of COVID, now my nose decides to start running. <laughs> I guess the Lord's working on my character. How many of you here have ever heard of Billy Graham? Yes? Did you know, I mean, look at the things that man accomplished that the Lord did through his life. You may have never known this. Did you know that Billy Graham had one basic message he preached every time? Do you know that? He had one message. It was the message of good news. That's all he did. He didn't go around talking about Calvinism or Armenianism. Once saved, always saved. Didn't talk about all the different theological issues that churches get caught up in, whether it's total immersion of baptism or sprinkling or pouring of water. He didn't get caught up talking about liturgy in the church and, tra and, and tradition. He had one basic message. It was the story of salvation. And what's amazing to me is how many people in the church these days can't articulate that message of salvation to people they know. So I'm going to do that for you today. I'm going to give you the short, high-level version of what all this nonsense 
as the world would call it, is all about. Why do, why do people need to have the inoculation of religion to make themselves feel better? Was it, was it said that religion is the opiate of the people? Was it Mark, Karl Marx that said that, I think? In other words, people are just using it as a drug. All right, so let me, get, let me give you a short version of it. God created two people that he wanted to have a relationship with. He created him in his own image so that he could lavish everything he had on them, everything about himself, everything that he owned. A couple people he could sit down and give his, share his most intimate dreams and his desires with. And it was beautiful. In fact, each morning, he walked with them. It says, in the cool of the day, if you live in South Texas in August, you don't get that. Cool of the day. I'd imagine they probably had their, their version of some dark roast coffee. Because God just told them about the day that he, he hung Saturn out there and put some rings around it. Or talked about when he created the angels and the eons beforehand when he did that and what his thought process was. Well, you ever wonder what the conversations with God was like every single day? When there was a perfect world, nobody was talking behind their back. Nobody was surfing the internet for something they shouldn't be surfing the internet for. It was just, I, I'm thinking when I can imagine the perfection that there was in the garden, but God loved these two people so much he said, I want them to have a free choice. I want them, if they're going to love me, I want them to decide to love me on their own. Not because I made them do that. I created them to love me, but I want them to choose to love me. So I'm going to give them the option of not loving me if they choose not to. Knowing full well they were going to make that choice. Could you imagine being a bride on your wedding day, knowing that your husband is going to choose to be unfaithful to him. You see, that's, that, that's what ultimate love is. It's free will. See, it's not love if I make you do that. I love my wife because she chooses every day to tolerate me and love me even when I'm not saying all the things that she wants to hear and I'm not doing all the things that she wants. She makes a choice to love me. That means much more to me than if I just took her someplace and had her programmed to have to love me. So he gives them a choice and they choose a different path. But with choices come consequences. And by the way, when he kicked them out of the garden, he wasn't punishing them. He was protecting them. Because the Bible tells us there's a tree of life that was there. And he had to keep them out of the garden so that they wouldn't eat from that tree of life and forever be stuck in that fallen state. So even the removal from the garden was an act of mercy knowing that he one day want, he had a plan to restore them, but didn't want them forever trapped. 
And so then we go into the rest of the Old Testament, all the stories that you hear. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, the Exodus. Then we hear about all the the good kings. We hear about the bad kings. We hear about people like Rahab, and we hear about people like uh, 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 Jeroboam. All these names that we can just go on and on and on. And some of these people are, I mean, they're priests. Some of them are shepherds. Some of them are kings. Just a whole gamut of life. As time is going on, and God's people are constantly under attack, he finally, God establishes through Abraham, he establishes a group of people that you and I know as the Jews, the Jewish nation, Israel, He says, I'm going to take a group of people, just because I'm going to take this group, I'm going to set them aside for myself so that I can pour my spirit, I can give them all the prophets, the promises, the privilege, the possession, so that the rest of the world can see that this is what happens when I have a relationship with a people who I can be their God and they will be my people. That's the whole reason why he established the Jewish nation. To have a people to reveal himself to, to everybody else. It's not because he thought that they were more special than anybody. They were in that he chose them. He could have chosen anybody, but he chose them. And he said, by the way, the promise, this plan that I have to redeem and restore is going to come through those people. So he's saying to the whole world across all time, watch, because I'm I'm trying to show you something. I'm going to reveal myself through this people. So you'll know who I am because I want to have a relationship with you. So we see all these stories through the Old Testament. You ever hear the word history? History. It's his story. History is his story. And as we read all through the Old Testament, all these fables, as people like Bill Maher likes to call them, we see this big arrow of time. It's actually pointing to the culmination of all time. It's when God chose to manifest himself in person in man's history. It says, I'm so wonderful, I'm so powerful, I'm going to show you I can make my creation give birth to me so I can be God Emmanuel. I can be with you. And that's what Christmas is about. God intersects man's history at a point in time when Scripture tells us in the fullness of time, in other words, these thousands of years it took to get there, God was doing everything he could to align just right. So let me give you an example of that. Do you realize before the Roman Empire, the world was not connected very much with roads. The Romans built all the highways and the roads that made commerce possible. So the world was coming together and doing life together and having commerce together. So why is this the fullness of time? Because when Jesus comes on the scene and starts his ministry, guess how the gospel is going to go about getting out to the rest of the world? It's going to be on those roads with highways and byways that the Romans built. So these things that are just man's wisdom, God is using and he's weaving into the fabric of time. This is good stuff because it's his story. 
But he sends his son. And he says to each person all over the world, his voice echoes down off the canyon walls of time to reverberate off the hearts of men and women who will listen and hear the truth. And he says, I'm calling out to you. And I'm telling you, there's no way out of all the anxiety. There's no way out of the physical sickness. There's no way out of life's insurity. There's no way out of wars where you're going to have peace except for by me. And I'm telling you, sons and daughters, if you won't, if you won't accept me, and even if you do, it's not that you're going to be absent of those things. But because I've overcome the world, I'm going to give you victory through them. So sickness no longer has dominion over you. So sin no longer has dominion over you. Let me say it another way. Sin can't make you do squat. You want to know what wholeness about, is about? You, don't want to, you want to know what humility is about? What power is about? The Father is saying, let me put my spirit in you. And you haven't got to run around the world. You're not going to go around the world acting silly and stupid. You're going to be a people that are going to draw people to you because they're going to want what you got. They're going to want to know, is there a hope for the drug addiction that I've suffered through, through the alcoholism? Is there a hope for the mental illness? Is there a hope for those who are spiritually broken, who don't feel like life is worth living? Yes. And that's what the cross is all about. Is it magical? Absolutely it's magical. It's a mystery of God. I don't get it. I don't understand how the person who hung the stars in the sky is born through his own creation. The woman that he created gave birth to him. And we see all these examples throughout the Bible where God is showing he controls even the elements. He can make the sun stop in the sky for three days. He can part an ocean and give people a peace that the walls weren't going to come crashing in on them while they were crossing over. I've voted in a lot of elections. I haven't met anybody yet who can promise any of that. Or even come close to it. That's what the gospel is all about. The Father said, you blew it, but I've made a way out. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. A real God who wants to have a relationship with you. Who tells us this is who I am. He gives us clarity on who. So there's no nebulous about, nebulousness about him. We know who he is. We know it's important to him. 
And by the way, God doesn't have a bad day on the days that you don't feel like worshiping him. He's very secure in who he is. He doesn't need your approval. That's why he's an all-powerful God. You see, his power is focused not on himself. His power is focused on you because you're the apple of his eye. You're the focus of what he wants to do. And it's free. It's free. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't recreate it. And the truth of the matter is you can't even imagine it. That's what Christmas is about. A point in time where God intersected man's history and says, I'm here to change the rest of your life if you'll let me. And you'll never look back because I know the plans that I have for you and they're not to harm you. They're to prosper you. They're to help you. They're to make your marriage stronger. They're to make your relationship with sons and daughters healthy and vibrant and reproducing. Rich and Corey, they're so that you can go out and reach people that nobody else can get. You know why we have this building here? It's not for us. People think, you know why you got a church building? You have a church building so that you can praise God and worship God. No, you're not. You don't. You can do that right out in a dirt parking lot. We have this building here for one reason. It's to reach people who are dying and going to hell every day. Because they have a heavenly father who gave everything he could to try to get them. He says, I want them. I want them back. And I'm going to give every one of you influence. I'm going to give you understanding to help me go find my other lost sons and daughters. Because I want them back. And I can tell you right now as a father who's got kids, if anything ever happened to any of them, if anything ever happened to them like what was going on over in Israel on October the 7th, there's not a place on this planet that I wouldn't turn over every rock I could, crawl through every hole that I could to try to find one of them and bring them home. There's no power on this earth that could keep me from doing it. I don't care what the threat is. That's me. A very broken, limited man. If I feel that way about one of my children, how do you think the God of all time feels about the billions of His that He gave His one and only Son violently and viciously so that He wouldn't ever have to lose one of the others except for by their own choice. Every one of you are here. You were made for such a time as this. God designed you to live at this point 
in all of history because whether you know him yet or not, he has somebody, he has a destiny, he has an appointment for you of somebody he wants you to tell another person about him. That's why we're here. That's the only reason why we're here. And in the process of doing that, we bring glory and honor to his name. We haven't got to raise big cathedrals. We haven't got to force what we believe down other people's throats. We haven't got to tell people they're going to hell because most of them already feel like they're in hell already. Maybe the next one will be better than this one. What they need to know, what they're desperately crying out and they want help with is how do I get out of this hell and into some sort of promise that maybe I can have a taste of something that I saw in that other person's life and it seems to elude me and escape me. But here's what I... Here's maybe what I'm finding out. I've worked with you in the workplace for a month or two, maybe a year or two. Maybe I've lived next to you for the last 10 years or something, and I see something in your life that's telling me you might have a key to the hope I'm looking for. Will you please, please tell me what it is? Because if I don't get it, I don't want to live any longer. And there's tens of thousands of people in Oneida County who are living every day just with a hope that they can survive to the next one. And that is not living, that's existing. And you and I have the hope for it. And it's not a prideful thing because we're not pointing them to us. We're pointing them back to Jesus and then trusting that he's going to do the rest of the work in them. So I haven't got to go around telling people they're going to hell. All I have to do is go around and tell people how good Jesus is. And hopefully, hopefully they're going to say, okay, okay, I'm going to give this a try. That's all we have to do. He does the rest. He does the rest. So I'm sorry I went over a little bit completely got away from my notes, but as I was sitting here going through the, the time with worship today, I knew that there was probably something in there that I needed to say out of the message I prepared, but I just, I just really felt that in this season, how simplistic the Advent is, God coming and being here. And it's like, well, why? Why? Why, why was it so important? Because he doesn't want anybody to be lost. I mean, think about how the, all he's had to orchestrate, all of man's history. And he didn't do things, a lot of bad things that bad men did. But he had to orchestrate it in a way, in a fashion that could reveal him and let you make a choice for him, but yet not force you into making a choice for him. I can't imagine there's 8 billion people alive on the earth right now. How many people have been across all time? 16, 20 billion? And he knows the ha- number of hairs on every one of their heads. He can make us do anything he wanted to. Well, actually, you know what? No, he couldn't. You know why? Because it's not his character. It's not his character. So here's my hope. If there's anybody in this room that's never decided that you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, 
I hope today is the day you make the decision. If today's not, I hope today you at least go home and you start stewing this over in your mind. Because after you die, there is no praying you out of purgatory into heaven or any of that nonsense. And you don't know when your last day is. Friday night, we went to a concert at the Stanley. As we were walking in, 10 minutes beforehand, one person lost their life crossing Genesee Street. Another one's in the hospital. I hope they knew Jesus. Because nobody is praying them out of purgatory today. They either knew him or they didn't. And you and I don't know how much time we have left. But I know you've been given this time, and you know how I know? Because you're sitting here looking at me. You have an opportunity. And I just want you to know the God who loves you, who did all this, probably is not the God that a lot of people have painted a picture of for you. And when I talk about people, I'm talking about a lot of pastors, a lot of priests, I'm talking about a lot of people running churches. Aren't necessarily bad people, but they're not healthy people. So they paint an image of a God who can kind of make us question once in a while. And that's the reason why we don't put our faith in people. We have to be a people of God's word because that's what reveals who he is. And he uses people to teach us. But he still knows where we are. He still knows what each one of you need to hear. Why don't you stand up with me? Father, I'm sitting here thinking about that today I was supposed to be talking about the power test and it just hit me as I started praying right now. <laughs> you, you gave me the, the power and the understanding to just share your truth. It's not of me. My time is limited here and then I'll go into a new season, Father, where you're going to entrust all these people to another pastor. Lord, I pray that in my four years here that it's been powerful and effective. And Father, I pray that none of the sheep that you gave me during this time will ever be lost. I understand why Jesus prayed that. You invest a lot in people and your hopes, prayers for them. And if this is the last that you ever use of me, it's been so worth it. Lord, I pray that as Julie and I depart out of here, that people who are in this room right now, Lord, I don't know everybody here and where they are, where their hearts are. But Lord, if you'll give us one more. Give us one more. Call another son home, another daughter home into your arms. 
God. They're giving up their life, but Father, this life will finally start in a way that they've never, ever imagined. That they don't see themselves through their own goodness, but Father, they see themselves as needing a Savior, knowing that you're going to be the standard in which they're compared to. And if you're one of those people, I'd ask you right now just to, in your own mind, in your, in your own breath, just say these words. Say, God, if you really exist, if you're really who this guy claims you are, then reveal to me right now. Show me on this day who you are. Now, Father, I just ask you to give each one of those people who might have just prayed that. Give them a knowledge and understanding in their knower that they might not understand now, but they'll come to understand. Give them a peace as we talk about the season of peace and joy and as you're the source of all those things, Lord, may we not just see you as a infant laying in a feed trough. We see you as the creator of the universe that just burst into man's history. Turned the world upside down forever and shook it so that each one of us might know you. And Father, we just thank you for this day and this season. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. I have a few people up front here. I want to encourage you. If any of you here have never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, but you're thinking now that maybe you have a little bit of understanding, you want to come up and let one of these people up front pray with you. Don't don't escape this Christmas season without understanding it's so much more than Christmas lights and cookies. Right? Folks, have a blessed week. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We would like to ask you a simple question. What has God spoken to you today? And how would he have you respond? We would sure love to hear from you. You can reach out to us with your prayer requests, your comments, or your questions at reimaginepeople.com and by clicking the Connect tab. We would also like to invite you to join us again next week for another encouraging and inspirational message from Reimagine Church.